0: tell these stories so that the generations to come can tell them god we pray that we would do that that we would be honorable that we would be loyal and that we would be humble in our role as those who disciple the next to disciple i pray your blessing on these families who are raising these children i pray your provision over these families who are raising these children i pray your protection over these families and the children god we trust and entrust everything to you we rest in the fact that you are sovereign and that you have authority over all things and that you've invited us into the process of participating and bringing about the completion of your will so we pray your blessing on this bible study this morning change us lord in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we're in a study on 1 Peter. We launched it last week. So last week we did our introduction to the letter. This week we do our introduction in the letter. Last week was the introduction to the letter. We laid all the historical context, all the cultural context. Today we live in the introduction of the letter. So we'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and we'll be reading from the ESV. It reads, Peter saturated with language that is taken from the Old Testament with imagery that rests in Old Testament Covenant theology this is saturated with Old Testament theology Peter cannot get away from the text of the Hebrew Scriptures because that's what he has access to in Peter's life the New Testament is non-existent in fact we argued last week, I believe well, according to history and uh, textual criticism, that it's even possible that the gospel of Mark was not even authored and in circulation while First Peter was going out. So imagine reading the letter of First Peter without a gospel to bounce it off of. That would be difficult. Imagine writing the letter. You, what would you be sourcing? You'd be sourcing the Old Testament text sprinkling with His blood, obedience, sanctification or consecration. These are Old Testament terms. Ooh, what about these hot button ones that no one likes to talk about? Elect. Foreknowledge. Ooh. Peter's an apostle. He's a sent one. He's an emissary of Jesus Christ. We have God the Father, the Spirit, and we have Jesus Christ. A pre-Trinitarian example. In the text, why would we say pre-Trinitarian? Because it's not in the order we like it in. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Did Peter get it wrong? No, it's just not like you say it this way. (laughs) This is stacked. Stacked. And we're going to do our best to work our way through this portion of the text this morning. In fact, I want you guys to read it out loud for me. I don't need to be the only one reading it. Let's take a cue from Paul's instruction to Timothy, and let's have you guys read the scripture. Go ahead, read it for me, please. Okay, so I've read the text, now you've read the text, we've done some spot observations, I just called out some spot observations. So let's take a deep breath, and let's start to make some general observations together. First, looking at the text, we could say that in the opening, Peter identifies the document. He identifies the document as a letter that's intended for mass distribution. Now, how can we qualify the statement that Peter is intending for this document to be mass distributed across the Roman Empire? Well, here's how. We put a map up. We say that Peter mentions Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, five Roman provinces. And we say, okay, we know this area as modern-day Turkey. But Peter knew it differently than we know it. Peter's talking about covering on a missions trip 129,000 square miles approximately. And this is before planes, trains, and automobiles, everybody. This is a big job. (laughs) And in the first century, that much travel, that's dangerous. Especially if you're a Christian. And remember, Peter's here in Rome with Sylvanus and John Mark and they're helping him write the letter. Once the letter's compiled, they're all copying it. They've got Emanuensis is hired. They're making copies upon copies upon copies because if there's these five provinces and this many square miles, it's safe to assume that there's a lot of different home churches that need the letter. So there's lots of copies going out. We're talking about mass production, mass distribution. Got a sail, Silvanus, take my letter. Down around Sicily, come into the Mediterranean, sail through Crete. Pass Ephesus, go by Troas and Philippi, enter the Isthmus, come up here, this is actually open, sail to um, Sinope, the port, dismount, distribute in an encyclical fashion, the letter to all the different churches, jump back on the boat and sail all the way back to Rome. This is not a short trip for Silvanus. It's not. This requires a lot of work a lot of planning, a lot of intention, and a lot of energy. So we've confirmed our first claim that Peter's letter is intended for mass distribution. Second, we could say that the opening greeting is hardly a customary hello. It is true that we could look at this letter in the original language and we could say it does have all the typical characteristics of a first century Greco-Roman letter. That's true. We could say that, however, New Testament scholar Peter Davids argues that Peter's epistolatory prescript, his letter's introduction, that's just a fancy way to say the letter's introduction, his epistolatory prescript is rooted in the text of the Old Testament. So let's, text the, let's test this claim. Let's see. Uh, can you stand up? You got your Bible? Yeah, open it up on the phone, whatever. A Bible's a Bible, brother. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Wait until you get, until, uh, until I ask you to read it. Siobhan, you got your Bible? Can you stand up? And after he's done, I'm gonna have you read Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. So Brandon's reading Daniel 4.1. 1. Siobhan's reading Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. Brandon, when you get to Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, go ahead and read it loud and proud for us. It's glitching, so I'm trying to just like pause it. Let's see. King Nebuchadnezzar. There you go. good to me to show signs and wonders the most high God has done for me there you go thank you Siobhan Daniel chapter 6 verse 25 give Nevaeh a second to get there with the camera so that she can capture you because the people on YouTube want to be a part of what we're doing here (laughs) we have people who can't be here and they faithfully tithe so our job is to minister to them to the same degree that we minister to one another go ahead Siobhan okay thank you so we have two internal evidences from the old testament let's look at a external evidence from the second temple period let's read a portion of second maccabees chapter one i'll read verse one through six this is not authoritative however it is helpful for framing our thoughts on how the first century jew thought The Jews in Jerusalem and those in the land of Judea, to their Jewish kindred in Egypt, greetings and true peace. May God do good to you and may he remember his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his faithful servants. May he give you all a heart to worship him and to do his will with a strong heart and a willing spirit. May he open your heart to the law and his commandments and may he bring peace. May he hear your prayers and be reconciled to you and may he not forsake you in a time of evil. We are now praying for you here. We can believe that as a good Jew, the Apostle Peter would be familiar with both the context of the Hebrew Scriptures and the context of the intertestamental history of Israel. He wouldn't call it that, but we would call it that. We believe that he would be familiar with both. It's his people's history. Do we understand, do we ever pause and just meditate on the reality that the text of the New Testament could not exist apart from the text of the Old Testament? It's a physical impossibility that the text of the New Testament could or would exist apart from the Old Testament. The text of the Old Testament lays the foundation for the text of the New Testament, The God of the Bible is a united God. The meta-narrative of Scripture tells one unified story. There are many stories, but it has one theological theme that it is painting and the picture comes clear in the mosaic of Jesus Christ. Peter's not doing anything new in the opening of his letter. This opening has all the characteristics of a Greco-Roman letter, but it's very Jewish. Shalom be multiplied to you. Nebuchadnezzar wrote peace to you. Darius wrote peace to you. And the Jewish elders writing to the Jews in Egypt wrote peace to you. This is very Jewish. We talk about this because we want to be able to prove that Peter is not dependent on Pauline literature. This is not Paul's intro that Peter stole. Peter's drawing on the Old Testament and on Second Temple literature to write his letter to the churches in dispersion. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's so beautiful. He's doing nothing new. Just as Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and the Jewish elders would have written an authoritative document and sent it out expecting all under their dominion to be obedient, so Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those in the church with the expectation that they would be obedient. It's one and the same. The kings of old would designate their emissaries. As authoritative messengers to carry written documents to all peoples, nations, and languages, just as we read in Daniel. So Jesus Christ designated Peter as God's authoritative messenger. He designated Peter as one of the interpreters of God's gospel via the authorship of the New Testament. Thomas Schreiner writes that the letter of 1 Peter does not simply represent good advice. Rather, it functions as a binding apostolic word for the church both then and now. This is why we talk about the text as authoritative. It was written to them, it is for us. Thomas Schreiner is correct in this aspect when he says that the text functions as an apostolic binding word for the church then and now. You want to know what the will of God is? Read First Peter. Submit to the text of First Peter and live like Peter teaches the church to live in 1st Peter. That's a great place to start. This is why Peter has decided to begin with a standard sender-recipient greeting that characterizes letters of antiquity. Can we see it? Let's put the next slide up. Peter is the sender, the elect exiles are the recipients, and this is his greeting. It falls within the cultural context of the first century, and it borrows from the context of antiquity in the Old Testament. That's what we're confirming here. The phrase, we just blow by this and it bugs me. The phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ, communicates a twofold meaning to the original recipients of the letter. Remember, we're after authorial intent and original audience understanding before we attempt to draw an application. That's what we're after here. That's how you do biblical interpretation. Step one author's intent, audience's understanding. If Peter, with this phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ, communicates a twofold meaning to the original recipients, we need to know what that twofold meaning is. First, it conveys purpose. Peter has been sent by Jesus Christ, apostolos. He's a sent one. Peter has been sent, his purpose was to be sent out. And sent out by Jesus. Second, it supplies the function of the purpose. Well, what's the function? Peter's been sent out to serve and proclaim Jesus Christ. It ain't rocket science. He's an apostle. His function is to be sent. Sent with a purpose. The function of the purpose is to proclaim Christ crucified. The first thing I preached to you, Paul says, was the very first thing I received. That what? What? Jesus was crucified and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the word, with the scriptures. We gotta know these things. We're disciples, right? We're disciples. We care about this stuff. It's important that we know these things. New Testament scholar Daryl Charles writes that the apostle Peter liked the others and when he says the others, he has the 12 that Jesus specifically elected and selected to be his He's talking about them. When Daryl Charles writes that the Apostle Peter, like the others, has been called out and sent out to witness, he says they've been sent with the purpose and the function of proclaiming the life, death, resurrection. Don't forget the Lordship of Jesus, our Messiah. Peter Davids claims that Peter, as a messenger of Christ, has been sent into the world with authority. Authority to do what? To carry out the will of the one who sent him. That's important. Dr. Keener reminds us that in the mind of Peter, there was no doubt that Peter was commissioned as an agent of his Lord and Master, the man, Jesus from Nazareth. How can we confirm Keener's claim? One of the last things we read about Jesus in his dialogue with Peter is he asks him three questions, and they're all the same. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed and tend to my sheep. In Peter's mind, there's zero question if he's a commissioned agent of Jesus. Zero Now as we meditate on the mindset of the apostle, not only his understanding, but the practical application of what it was that he understood, I wonder what it would produce in our hearts and minds. I need somebody to stand up and read 2 Peter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible and you get there first, just stand up and read 2 Peter Boom. Oh, to receive a faith as precious as ours, Peter says. In the ESV it says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. A faith of equal standing with the apostles who walked and talked and did life with Christ? Yes, Lord, what a beautiful reality we need to stop when we read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we need to meditate on these realities that we too have obtained a faith of equal standing. Amen! Amen. My heart's racing, I'm sweating, my hair is standing up. I want a faith that matches the faith of the apostles. And Peter says, you've been given one. Hallelujah. Yeah! If we understand that we have obtained a faith of equal standing, I wonder why we breeze past the statements like this. Because when we say we understand it, but then we don't stop and meditate on the text, we remove the Holy Spirit's ability to bring an effective change in us. Because I just want to read past that to get to the favorite passage that I like in Peter. But every jot and tittle is important. Every word carries meaning. A faith of equal standing. Peter has been called. Peter's been elected. Peter's been sent. Guess what, saints? We've been called. We've been elected. And we've been sent in the same way, by the same Lord. Does the fruit of our lives offer any evidence that is supportive to our calling? Does the fruit of our lives offer any evidence that is supportive to our election? Only you can answer that. Maybe those you do life with and watch you most often can answer it. But really, truly, only you can because as humans we can be deceived. But remember that God is not mocked. Does the fruit of our lives offer supportive evidence to our calling and election, saints? It's a good question to ask yourself. All the time we should be asking ourselves that. As your pastor, I surely hope that the fruit and the evidence of your lives does because in my mind, election is not synonymous with salvation. <gasps> what? Let me say that again. In my mind, you can. you're free to disagree here. We're not into brainwashing people. We're into challenging one another with the text. Iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. In my mind, election is not synonymous with salvation. I understand that's a grandiose statement and it needs to be qualified. So don't check out on me, stay plugged in. However, we need to understand that moving forward, I won't be offering a systematic theological explanation on soteriology. That's not my job. I'm a pastor. I'm preaching and teaching. You want to learn a systematic theological defense for your system? Go read a book. They sell them. Isaac and Shauna have them in stock at Vine and Branches, and they will sell them to you. We exegete the text on Sunday mornings. So I will not be offering a systematic theological explanation of soteriology, which is just a fancy way of saying how God saves us. What I'll be doing is offering to the best of my ability, remember I'm human, I'll be offering an exegesis of the text in its context. It's Peter, it's the author, who speaks of the social status of his readers. And he does this using a series of three Greek terms. He's the one that did it this way, not me. He uses terms like elect or chosen, ekletos, exile or sojourner, parapidimos, and scattered or dispersed diaspora. Guess what, saints? All three of these words are directly tied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. All three of them. And if the Old Testament sets the foundation for the New Testament, and then Peter's drawing on what to write this letter? The text of the Old Testament. Peter calls the people to whom he writes the elect. Peter calls them God's chosen people, depending on your English translation. If we were to survey the text of the Old Testament, then we would discover that this was at one time a title which belonged specifically and exclusively to Israel as a nation. So let's survey the text. Don't take my word for it. Never take my word for it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now look here. This you and this you. The context is plural. It's not singular. So if you make it singular, you're doing something the author never intended. How do we know that? Because God selected Israel out of all of the peoples, plural. The fullness of the context of the text is plural. By the way, the context is communicative context. It's not individualistic context. There was no such thing as an individualistic thought process in the ancient Near East. It was all about community and it was driven by honor and shame. I don't make the rules. I just study the Bible according to them. So Peter calls the people that he writes to in the New Testament, the elect. Which means he's metaphorically applying language that was literal in the Old Testament to the church of Christ in the New Testament. The Israel of God, Paul would say in Galatians. Okay? Let's not proof text our way through this with one. Let's see if we can survey. Deuteronomy 14.2 For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I didn't copy and paste the wrong verse in there. The Deuteronomic author writes the same thing in two different areas. Repetition probably calls for attention, right? Okay. Remember, the only word that changed in this is the word and. And. Right there. That's the only added word. Let's go to the next slide. What does Isaiah have to say? Isaiah is probably one of the greatest Old Testament theologians. So let's just trust what Isaiah has to say. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. To know that God has the ability to name you as his elect and you not even know him is a beautiful reality. It's a beautiful reality to know that God knows you when you lack knowledge of Him. That's the God of the Bible. How do we know He's not just talking to Jacob in the singular? Because Jacob was renamed Israel. Well, let's look at what the psalmist has to say. Psalm 105, verse 6 says, "O offspring of Abraham. Yep, that would be Jacob in the family tree. His servant, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. Plural. Same chapter, different verse. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Check this out. Now we're in Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. Thematically, it is unified. God has called a people, a nation in its fullness to be what Zechariah would call the apple of his eye. Dennis Edwards writes that in this context, election refers to God's invitation or calling to be part of a people who will live distinctly, i.e., wholly set apart from the rest of the world. Now we match Leviticus and 1 Peter chapter 16 with Dennis Edwards' claim. I love this. God's invitation. The context of election functions as God's invitation. Now, I wonder if there's a way to confirm this claim from Edwards. Well, maybe we should just read Exodus chapter 24. How about we do that? Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is the nation speaking here. This isn't a small group within the nation. This is the nation speaking here. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Leave no one out, Moses says. Build an altar and build twelve. Twelve what? Pillars to represent all tribes of Israel. All people in Israel. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar. Oh, you, this is the same slide. Switch it on. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with reading the same passage twice. And he sent. So this is what Moses did. So check this out. Just so nobody's confused, Moses builds the altar. He establishes 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes. He sends young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient Oh, there's that word, obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Consecration, sanctification. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I said that Peter's metaphorically applying the literal words of the Old Testament to the church of God in Christ Jesus. Why? I've never literally been sprinkled with blood, but they have. The context, you can't get away from it. The context of Peter in 1 Peter in his introduction is the covenantal language that we take from Torah. It's the Old Testament that lays the foundation for the New Testament. I don't make the rules. Does that offer us any help? I think it does. Did we catch it? The nation of Israel makes several voluntary pledges of obedience to do everything that the Lord has said. And accompanying accompanying these confessions, the people perform rituals, cult rituals, involving the blood of sacrificed animals, which is splashed not just on the altar, but the people. The sprinkling of the blood by the means of which the people are cleansed and the covenant is sealed. Guess what Peter has in mind? Not just the blood of bulls, but the blood of Christ, which has ransomed us from the enemy. Read the letter of 1 Peter in its entirety. I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's so beautiful how God threads this beautiful weave through all of His story of His glory. And His redemptive arm is moving through history. That's the God of the Bible. In my mind, it's the context of the Hebrew Scriptures which lays the foundation for the opening in 1 Peter. Election marks the beginning. Election marks the beginning. It's the inauguration of the covenant relationship. Yes, listen up, saints. We have the honor of being chosen by God, but there is a challenge and a responsibility involved here as well. God always chooses for service. Think about what we did in our study of Peter the Apostle. God always elects with service in mind, purpose and function. The honor with which God bestows is that of being used for his purposes. What is the chief aim of man, everybody? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God elects for his purposes. So I say again, if we're reading the text in context... God's purpose in election is to form a consecrated people out of people who are obedient. Be holy, for I am holy. That's the instruction. In Torah, that's Peter's instruction to the church in the Roman provinces. Which is why I find it necessary as a pastor, not only to parse terms, but concepts. We have to parse terms and concepts. Terms like election and salvation. Because in my mind, they're not synonymous. As modern readers, I believe it would do us well to understand that divine election did not make Israel or the Israelite people immune to divine punishment. It didn't. Let's qualify the statement. We could read Numbers chapter 8 or Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll find two clear examples of how God set apart, he elected, selected and chose Levi, the tribe from within the people of Israel. But don't take my word for it. Let's read it. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me. Strong statements, everybody strong statements from among the people of israel do we have another one therefore levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers the lord is his inheritance covenantal language let's ask ourselves how did that divine election How did that promise of inheritance work out in the long term for men like Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord? They were elected to serve as priests. They were given their role by God, a specific role. And when they performed wicked sacrifices, what did God do? He consumed them with fire. Divine election is not immunity to divine wrath. If time were not a problem today, time is always a problem for me. If time were not a problem today, we would look at the narrative of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram so that we could pull from the people of Israel and not just the priests of Israel. We could read Samuel and we could look at Eli's wicked sons. There's all kinds of evidence that we could draw on. But the real elephant in the room (laughs) would be the historical event of the exile. This event in and of itself is all the evidence that one would need to prove that divine election fails to offer immunity in the face of Yahweh's righteous wrath. Divine election fails to offer immunity in the face of Yahweh's righteous wrath. Look at the Exodus for your evidence. At this point, I believe that we have offered sufficient evidence to confirm that election has been identified as the inauguration of the covenantal relationship between both God and humanity. But we still have to deal with verse 2 in First Peter. So I need you guys to read verse 2 out loud for me, please. Now, I have a legitimate question that the church has been incapable of answering. Some people like to take it back to the Reformation, but if you read Josephus, you could take it back to the Qumran sect, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this is nothing new under the sun. But I have a legitimate question. If divine election spans the entirety of one's inauguration and consummation, into the family of God, i.e. your justification, sanctification, and glorification, then what's the function of everything else that Peter goes on to describe in verse 2? It's a legitimate question. He talks about foreknowledge, not just election. He talks about sanctification. He talks about obedience, and he talks about sprinkling. If he talks about all of these things, why do we just try to reduce it down to one word? Now, Thomas Schreiner writes that the word foreknowledge could simply mean that God foresaw whom would be his elect. He goes on to say that no one doubts this. However, the real question in his mind, listen to this, is whether the term foreknowledge means more. Does foreknowledge imply that it would include the reality that God ordains who would be elect? That's the question in Thomas Schreiner's mind. Now, this is a great question for Christians who believe like Thomas Schreiner. I, however, just believe differently. Now, because in his mind, divine election and foreknowledge, they're forever connected. In the mind of Thomas Schreiner, divine election and foreknowledge are forever connected. Which means that election and foreknowledge require predestination. I'm not sure that this is the case. I'm just going to come out there and say it. I'm also not going to ask you to just take my word for it. Now, for all of our differences, me and Dr. Schreiner, who's way smarter than I am, for all of our differences, we have one point of agreement. We both agree that foreknowledge should be understood within the covenantal terms of the text. So let's take a look at the covenantal language that we can identify in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Next slide. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So Thomas Schreiner and I believe that foreknowledge needs to be understood within covenantal terminology. Well, we just read the terms of the covenant straight out of the Bible. In my mind, it's fairly clear the God of the universe has spoken. He's spoken clearly, and he's communicated all of the necessary information. What do we mean when we say necessary information? Well, we could talk about the natural revelation. We could talk about the oral tradition that was passed down from Adam to Noah The Tower of Babel, just waiting to see if anybody's going to chime in here. (laughs) The Mosaic Covenant, and anything in between. How about the written text, the things that Moses wrote down? God gave Israel, the nation, all of the necessary information that they needed, just like Peter says, we have everything we need. It's a unified thought from Genesis to Revelation that the people of God have everything that they need. And we believe that every good and perfect gift comes from him. Which means that by proxy, the sovereign creator decided to endow us to some degree with the freedom of the will. And I can say that with a clear conscience because obedience gives way to blessing and disobedience gives way to cursing. That's the covenantal terms of the language. So we've set the required backdrop of covenantal uh, terminology. So now we can finally ask the question. So let's ask it. Are the concepts of foreknowledge and predestination inseparable? Just the million dollar question right here. Are the concepts of foreknowledge and predestination inseparable? To discover the answer, all we need to do is read the text. 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to read 13 verses together. Pay attention. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah." And are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, "Shall I go and attack these Philistines?" And the Lord said to David, "Go and attack the Philistines and save Kielah." But David's men said to him, "Behold, David, we're afraid. We're afraid in our home country. How much more if we go to Kielah against the armies of the Philistines?" It's like pause. I'll go ask God. I'll go ask him again, just to make sure. <laughs> that I heard him correctly. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keolah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David and his men went to Keolah and fought with the Philistines and brought them away. and their lives, They brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keolah just as God said he would. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David, to Keolah, he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. David's an idiot. At last, at long last, he's gone into the city. I can surround him, capture him, and destroy him. Saul summoned all the people to war. To go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down, as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Looking for an answer? The best place to go is the Bible. In this account, David appeals to the omniscient God, and he asks him a question about the future. In the first instance, verse one through five, which we just read, David asked God whether he, could go to the, whether he should go to the city of Keilah and whether he'll success, successfully defeat the Philistines there. God answers in the affirmative in both cases. He does. David goes to Keilah and defeats the Philistines. In the second section, verse 6-13, through David asks the Lord two questions. One, will his nemesis Saul come to Keilah and threaten the city on the account of David's presence? And two, will the people of Keilah turn him over to Saul to avoid Saul's wrath? Again, God answers both questions affirmatively. He will come down. He will come down was the words of Yahweh. They will deliver you. Those were the words of Yahweh. However, neither of these events that God foresaw ever actually happened. It's in the Bible. Once David hears God's answers, he and his men leave the city. When Saul discovered the fact that David had left in verse 13, he abandoned his trip to Keilah. Saul never made it to the city. The men of Keilah never turned David over to Saul. Saul. Why is this significant church? This passage clearly establishes that divine foreknowledge does not necessitate divine predestination. It doesn't. God foreknew that Saul would do something given the chance. He foreknew that the people of Keilah would do something given a certain set of circumstances. In other words, God foreknew a possibility. But this foreknowledge did not mandate that the possibility was actually predestined to happen. These events never happened. So by definition, they could not have been predestined. And yet the omniscient God did indeed foresee them. Therefore, predestination and foreknowledge are separable. Mr. Schreiner is incorrect. According to 1 Samuel, not according to Matthew Oberlander. Now, why is this important, church? It's important because how we frame election and foreknowledge will, inevit- it will inevitably color how we read the text. It will. You don't have to agree with me. People have been fighting about this and killing one another over it for years. I'm just. As the pastor, I'm required to parse terms and concepts. I am. I'm not going to oversimplify things and pretend people in the room are stupid or that they can't outthink someone who's dedicated their life to a system. I'm not going to do that. I'm required to parse terms and concepts from within the context of the text in its entirety. Old Testament to New Testament. Old Testament lays the foundation for what Peter writes in the New Testament. We looked at it. There's no way around it. It's my job to make sure that we don't skew the text in an attempt to make it fit a system that contradicts the author's intent and the original audience's understanding. Listen to me, God is sovereign. I can say that with a clear conscience, God is sovereign. And we, the elect of God, are responsible to do well with what has been entrusted to us. Think about Jesus' teaching on the parable of the talents. Think about the field that had been entrusted and the slaves and the son who were destroyed and the field was taken from those who were given something by the master. It's our responsibility to do well with what's been entrusted to us. Covenantal terminology is relational terminology. God is Emmanuel with us. It's a relational God which we worship in the God of the Bible. If divine election spans the entirety of one's inauguration and consummation into the family of God, justification, sanctification, and glorification, why does the Apostle Peter decide to write to scattered Christians throughout the five Roman provinces in an attempt to remind them of their redemption through the death of Christ, to remind them of their living hope through his resurrection, and to remind them of their new status as God's own people? Why does he encourage them to follow Christ's example and maintain love for one another and good conduct towards others if they don't have a choice in the matter? The thrust of Peter's letter is encouragement to endure. Why do they need encouragement to endure if they don't have a choice in the matter? The thrust of Peter's letter. Stay loyal. Nate, be steadfast, right? You just sent me the message. Be steadfast. Run the race as if you finished it. Don't stand still and say, I've got a status. The thrust of Peter's letter is encouragement to endure, to stay loyal, to be steadfast. Ah, let's look at his language. To be holy in all of your conduct for the Lord your God is holy. He says, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What do you think he's drawing on? The text of the Old Testament. We need to be reminded that we have a choice to make, church. Peter actually believes that humans have the ability to deny the master who bought them. Read 2 Peter. God forbid, AC squared, God forbid that we would be marked in our own lives in the very same way that marked the nation of Israel. Israel was marked by failure. They were. God forbid, AC Squared, that we be marked by failure. Just as Israel had been given all that was needed for success, so we too have been given all that we need. In the text of Scripture, God, of His own gracious will, approached Israel that they might be His people and He be their God. But that covenantal relationship depended on Israel's acceptance of the conditions the acceptance of the conditions of the covenant, and they were required to obey the law. Suzerain vassal treaty. Tommy's taught on it. I've taught on it. Obedience will be forever necessary to the Christian life. Obedience will be forever necessary to the covenantal relationship between God and man. Obedience will be forever necessary. Failure in obedience meant failure of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Foy Valentine writes that the fact that Peter mentioned obedience to Jesus Christ first and sprinkling with his blood last in this reference is a helpful reminder that God has never cleansed sinners as his first and most important work and then called them to obedience as a secondary and merely optional matter which they're free to take or leave. Obedience and cleansing go together. Obedience and cleansing go together, church. Where there is no obedience, there is no cleansing. And where there is cleansing, there is obedience. Saints, we must not make the same mistake that Israel did. We must not presume on God because of a perceived or even a gifted status. Our actions have consequences both temporal and eternal. Suffering is the precursor to glory. Look at the life of Christ. Not election. Suffering is the precursor to glory. Vindication is neither rescue from suffering nor does it come in spite of suffering. Christ experienced it all. Suffering is the path to vindication and glory. Saints were called to be like the master. How did Jesus' life end up? It begs the question, AC Squared, do we have what it takes to endure? Only you can answer that. As we sit here contemplating the answer to that question in light of the evidence of our lives, because that is what we will be judged by. The books will be opened and we will be judged according to our works you know what the difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do so while we sit here contemplating if we have what it takes to endure i will pray and i'll ask that you pray the same thing that peter prayed in the close of his introduction may grace and peace be multiplied to you father thank you for this day We have surveyed the text of your scripture. We have looked at the covenantal language. We have looked at the terms that you set, God. We recognize that you have called us. And you have elected us. And you have invited us into relationship. But there is tension in this relationship. It's not just dependent on you. You have done everything that is required, Father. Now it is dependent on us. We must be loyal and steadfast. We must be holy as you are holy. This is the command of Christ. So Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to endure. Because every good gift comes from you. Anything we lack, we come from you. If we don't, we come to you. If we don't have something, we ask you for it, Father. So I'm beseeching you today on behalf of myself and this body for the endurance of To persevere. Because perseverance is important. We love the fact that you have gifted us with faith. We love the fact that we have your grace and your mercy. We love the fact that we have you. And God, we pray that our lives would honor that covenantal relationship. And that we would live worthy to the call that you've placed on our lives. That we would be obedient. So that we might be sprinkled with your blood. In Jesus' name.